Good morning. How is everyone? Good. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. We've been working through 2 Thessalonians. We're going to take a break for a few weeks during this Christmas season to look at some passages in the New Testament regarding the birth of Jesus. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age also has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus. We thank you that he came to save us. We thank you, Lord, for the incarnation, for your Son coming in the flesh. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. And Lord, help us even during this busy time in the midst of getting gifts to give to others and setting in plans, different um, things with family and friends. Lord, help us to continue to have our hearts set on you, to continue to put you first and foremost, in all things. Yeah. Lord, we continue to, to lift up our friends, our neighbors, our family members who don't know you. May this season, God, that we're celebrating the birth of your son, may this season, Lord, they hear the good news of the gospel and respond in faith. Use us, Lord, to deliver that message. We 
We pray, Lord, for our children's musical coming up in a few weeks, that you would bless that as well, and many would hear the good news on that day and respond in faith. We thank you that you are a good and gracious God, that you are here for us, the downtrodden, that you stand with us no matter what might come, and you are always there with us. Continue to be with us, Lord, as we know you will. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, one of the trite sayings that you hear during this time of year is, is Jesus is the reason for the season, right? Jesus is the reason. Jesus is the reason. I'm going to say and put before you today that Jesus is the reason for any season. All right? And when you think about it, I mean, he's even the reason that we have seasons. True? Like he created it all. John 1, right? All things were created by him, for him, through him. What does Colossians say? For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Isn't that awesome? So we consider it important to have our times and seasons defined in relation to Jesus Christ. That's why our calendar even reflects it and has. Now you would think our calendar has reflected it for 2,000 years, right? 2021. But actually our calendar didn't come about until around uh, the 6th century. There was a monk by the name of uh, Dionysius Exegesis. Something like that. It's a little tricky to pronounce, even with my Latin. Uh, but that just meant uh, Dionysius the Humble. Um, we get the name Dennis from Dionysius. But around 500 AD, he was born in uh, Scythian Minor, and he moved to Rome. He was a monk, and he brought about the idea of setting the calendar um, with two things. One, setting the new year according to the birth of Jesus. So that would be the beginning of the year. So what date do you think he said? If, if we celebrate the birth of Jesus on December 25th, what would be the uh, conception of Jesus? Well, just go back nine months, right? So March 25th is what he submitted for that to be the new year. Nine months later, Christmas, right? Um, that ended up getting changed because the, the church and really the world for about uh, a thousand years followed that. March 25th would be the beginning of the new year. It wasn't until about 1500s that a pope actually changed it to January 1st. But Dionysius, or Dennis, the humble, um, submitted that we should date all things starting all the way back with the birth of Jesus being ground zero, so to speak. Now, we know from more research that he was off a few years, basically four, uh, because Herod who um, was king at the time um, in Jerusalem, died in 4 BC. Okay, so that would be our, our true starting point. Be that as it may, um, the reason, or one of the reasons that Dennis um, put forth this kind of new calendar was because Diocletian, uh, who was this wicked emperor, had kind of reset the calendar himself 
and ordered all things according to, to how he wanted it and according to when he became emperor and took power in those different things. So instead of kind of commemorating this wicked, evil emperor, uh, Dennis thought, hey, let's, let's take it back to when Jesus was born and let's start there. Um, now, people today have tried to get away from the significance of the date of Jesus' birth by bringing in new letters and abbreviations, right? So we know A.D. Anyone know what that means? You know, you know what it says, right, but do you know what it means? Yeah, Anno Domini, um, in the year of our Lord. It's just, it's Latin. What about B.C.? Before Christ, that's so original, right? <laughs> A.D. is like super fancy, and then you get, oh, B.C., before Christ. But if you've been um, to college in the last 30 years or so, um, they, don't, they don't use that dating system anymore, right? It's now it's C.E. for the Common Era and B.C.E. before the Common Era. Of course, well, they still trace it back. When, did that, when does that begin, right? I mean, that's always my question, like, for the professors. Like, if you're in college and they start using that, I mean, just ask, raise your hand and ask your professor, hey, what event occurred that made them place the Common Era when they did? Right? Like, what event occurred in 1 C.E.? <clears throat> So Jesus came to the earth. And he came to the earth as a baby. Right? Look at Luke 1.34. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? So Mary does not have human relations with anyone, including her engaged, her fiancé at the time, Joseph. And, and betrothal was a lot more serious than it is today. We know people that um, get engaged, um, and those engagements don't last. Back then, it was, it was a lot more serious, and you had to go through kind of a, more of a formal, almost like a divorce, um, to, to break the betrothal. But they did not have relations. They didn't even have relations, as, as we see, until after Jesus was born. Okay. So he comes to the earth as a baby. This is known as the virgin birth. God himself, it says, the Holy Spirit, verse 35, will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. He came to the earth on a rescue mission to rescue us. He came to the earth to redeem a people of God's own choosing. He came to the earth, and listen to me, to rule over the earth. He came to the earth to be Lord of the earth. And he will come to reign. Did, did you know, I just heard this, my mom shared this with me yesterday. Um, she was sharing with some people that she knew about Jesus coming back. They didn't even know that. Like, I mean, they're, they're, they're not believers, but they didn't even know from the limited amount of, of Christian theology or exposure, they did not even know that Christians believe that Jesus is coming back. I mean, that kind of, I mean, it just sometimes like things we just kind of assume, yeah. like other people just don't even know. And that's even an opportunity, like uh, as we're meeting with our friends and family for different Christmas gatherings, of just sharing some basic theology like that, that we know is foundational and important. Sadly, there might be believers or people who call themselves believers that don't know Jesus is coming back. Uh, he came to the earth to rule over the earth. 
He came to the earth to be Lord of the earth. Look at Revelation. Hold your finger in, in uh, Luke because we're going to be coming back to it. But look at Revelation chapter 1. In verse 4, Revelation 1, it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and what does it say? The ruler of kings on earth. That, that's what He is. Now, when, when John's writing this, Jesus hasn't come back the second time. He still hasn't come back the second time. But how does he acknowledge him? The ruler of kings on earth. So he is Lord of all. And this is important because he's not just Lord of heaven, but he's Lord of earth. And he's not just Lord on earth, but he's Lord in heaven too. He is what we would say, Lord of all. Sometimes we make statements like that, that's a pretty profound theological statement to make. That Jesus is Lord of all. I mean, that's a title that he has given. 23 times back in Luke, whenever that term Lord is used, it refers to the God of Israel. 23 times. Just in the birth narrative, it refers to the God of Israel. Yet twice in the birth narrative, it's applied to Jesus. Look at uh, back in chapter 1. This is Elizabeth talking, and she says in verse 43, Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? The mother of my Lord. Well, I mean, who is she referencing? Jesus, right? The mother of my Lord should come to me. Then look at chapter 2. Now, if you want to do something sometime, don't do it now during the sermon because I want you to listen to what I'm saying. But if you want to do something sometime, because I've done it, it's, I'm looking at it right here in my Bible, underline in chapter 2 all the times that Lord appears. I mean, it, it appears a lot, like I said, 23 times in the, in the birth narratives. But I want you to notice something. Let's start in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, I mean, who's it talking about? I mean, it's talking about Yahweh, right? It's talking about God. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And if you keep reading, it goes back to referencing the Lord throughout, talking about Yahweh. Here, we can miss some basic things where God is letting us know the announcement is made that God himself has come amidst his people. So this title, Lord, is significant. Lord of Lords. And titles matter and descriptions matter. This is a, a term, this Lord of Lords is used in the Old Testament, again, referencing 
Yahweh. Look at Psalm 163. Because sometimes we're like, I want to know God better. I want to know God better. I want to grow in my faith. I want to know Jesus. I want to get closer to them. Well, then you have to know him. You have to study about him. You have to see what his word says so that you can grow in knowledge and faith in him. That's what we're doing. Psalm 136, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, you know, last week we had our Thanksgiving service, and we looked at some different passages. You know, giving thank, thanksgiving and praise, it's like they go hand in hand, right? You're coming to, into his courts, you're coming in with thanksgiving and praise. We just got done with thanksgiving and praise. Hopefully this time as well, there should be thanksgiving and praise. Yeah. All right? But here we see this title, God of gods, Verse 3, Lord of lords. Who are we doing that to? Yahweh. God himself. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10. Let's start in verse 14, Deuteronomy 10. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. I mean, is anything excluded there? No. Heaven and earth. Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. 16. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Again, this title applied to Yahweh. He's the God of gods. He is the Lord of lords. We're going to look at what that means in a second, but I want to look at a couple more passages. 1 Timothy chapter 6. It starts out in verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Again, you look at the context. I mean, who is it describing? It's, it's describing God the Father. Right? Unapproachable light. No one has ever seen or can see. He has immortality. He will reveal Jesus, it says, at the proper time. But then look what we see in Revelation. Turn there to chapter 17. 
In verse 14, it says, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. Why will he conquer them? For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Here, the scripture is revealing something to us. That this Yahweh, our God, the great God, the triune God, Jesus is this Yahweh. Jesus is God. He is this Lord of lords and this King of kings. Look two chapters later, Revelation 19. We get this description of the the rider on the horse. Before that, in verse 6, it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Starts in verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And then it goes on. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. I mean, we're getting a description here, friends, of Jesus, the faithful and the true. His robe dipped in blood. He is the Word. Verse 14, and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now what's that saying? Literally, the king, he is the king of those who reign as kings. He is the Lord of those who reign as lords, who rule as lords. This statement in its entirety says that God is the possessor of the highest power over all. He possesses power and he has full control over all who exercise any control. If the kings and the rulers and the lords are subject to him, then we are too. And so is everyone. So he's the Lord of lords. He's also Lord of all the earth. Where does his rule extend? It's in heaven, but it's also on earth. Now, interestingly, we're not going to look at it, but there's a, a couple references with Joseph in the Old Testament. He was actually like a type of Christ. 
if you look at his life, there's different type, what we call types of Christ in the Old Testament. They give us like foreshadows. And that, that term, he loosely applies a couple times to himself. I'm Lord of all his house, referring to Pharaoh. Uh, when he's telling his, his father and his brothers, come on down, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. He uses that kind of similar phraseology. That makes sense because Joseph was a type of Christ. Okay. You can see that. The, the imagery there is amazing if you start to, to study it a little bit. But then earlier, or excuse me, later we see a couple places where this idea of Lord of all the earth, not just in a specific region like Joseph with Egypt or a, a geographic area, but meaning Lord of all the earth, meaning of all the earth. So look at Joshua chapter 3. This is when Israel's crossing the Jordan. Verse 7 of chapter 3, The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that, I, that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priest to bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, back then, it was quite significant to make claims like that because all those um, different ethnicities or nationalities or tribes that we just read the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, Jebusites like they all had their gods usually each one had a, a particular god that, that they um, kind of exalted still acknowledging other gods that's almost like a henotheism there's one above many but that's in part, what made Israel unique, saying, just, yeah, he, we don't, we're not just henotheists, we're, we're monotheists. There's, just, there's God, and, and that's all there is. Okay? But those tribes and those ethnicities believed that you know, their God only ruled over a, a certain locale, over a certain geographic region. So sometimes when you're reading through your Old Testament, it's like, oh, they got trampled in, in, in the valley. So they're like, oh, retreat to the mountains. Well, part of the reason they're retreating to the mountains is because that, that particular ethnicity or tribe, um, the god, the one, the, the main one they worshipped uh, was the, the god mountain, you know, or the mountain of the, you know, the god of the mountains, right? So, okay, we're going to have power there. We got, we got destroyed in the valley because we don't worship that god. He's not our prime one. But, but Israel comes along and is like, hey, like, we got the God. And, and he's not stuck in some locale somewhere. He's everywhere. So a statement like this, where Joshua is saying, behold the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth, right? Because you would think, here they're passing over into Jordan. And, and some of the Israelites, potentially, I mean, they had all sorts of issues, idol worship included. 
they might be thinking, man, we're crossing from this area where, where God's been ruling and reigning, and now we're going into a new area. And is God going to be ruling and reigning? And Joshua is saying, yes. Like, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into Jordan. He was with us here, and he's going to be with us there. In fact, he's already there. But we're giving you a, a, a visual representation of him going before us with the Ark of the Covenant. And, and friends, if we just want a little bit of an application for us right now, like, man, we serve a God who's not bound. Okay? So wherever we're going, and I've been into some dark regions of, of the physical earth, all right? There's some, some darkness in Belize, some, some serious darkness. But guess what, friends? The God of the universe is in Belize, and he's there ruling. And there's some dark places in the United States. But guess what? The God of the universe is there too. And he wants to shine his light. He is shining his light. What do people do? They turn their back on it. They turn their back on God shining his light. But he's shining his light. So there's not one square inch of this earth that God is in that. Okay. So wherever he takes us physically, we can have full, complete confidence and assurance. God is already there. We can also make a spiritual application, including what, whatever God brings into our life in terms of spiritual things, different circumstances that we have to go through, different things we're, we're working through, maybe personal struggles, a, a besetting sin that continues to trip us up. Like, God will help us conquer that thing. Why? Because he is ruler of the earth. We're not like some cultic um, religion out there where, like, oh, God is in the heaven and hopefully someday he comes and rescues us, and we'll get on that trail behind the comet and be rescued or whatever. No. He's here on earth. We get a visible sign of it in the son of his, in his son Jesus coming to this earth in the flesh. So he's, he's the Lord of all the earth. If we keep reading, we see it again. Now therefore, verse 12, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, again he says it, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. This visible representation, this visible sign, you know, the ark of the covenant, that was God's presence among the people. But, and he's always going before them even into the new land, even into the promised land. And, but what is, what, is the, what is the idea there? We follow God. We follow God. He goes this way, that's the way we're going. He goes this way, that's where we're going. We've been marching in this wilderness for 40 years. Why? Because that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where he was, so that's where we're at. He wants us to lead us in a new direction, that's where we're going to go. He wants us to stay put for, for a bit, that's where we're going to be. He goes, we go. Friends, we got to be willing to follow him wherever he might take us, physically and spiritually. Amen? Amen. Look at Psalm 97. Verse 1, Psalm 97. 
the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Amen? Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. We're going to come back to this, this idea in verse 1 of the earth rejoicing. But for now, focus on verse 5. We see what, what God does when he arrives, right? Man, fire goes before him. His adversaries are taken care of. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax. Well, guess what, friends? We see a reaction from creation itself upon the arrival of God. We need to make sure we have the proper reaction as well. If creation can react, then we, as part of creation, better have a reaction. And it needs to be back to verse 1, rejoicing. So he is the Lord of all the earth. One more passage in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 6. Verse 1, Zechariah chapter 6. Again I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after pre presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. And then it goes on with more of a description. Again, who, who is the Lord of all the earth? Yahweh. God himself. Why is that important, Pastor? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Let me show you. Acts chapter 10. I read a book a number of years ago, maybe probably like 10 or 15, on uh, religious illiteracy in America. And it, and it had a test um, that basically at the time, so whenever, you know, 50, 60 years ago, uh, most, most Americans, I mean, it was just some basic questions. Now, all the Christian questions, I hope you all would get, like, what are the four Gospels, right? <clears throat> different kind of softball questions like that. But some of them dealt with different religions. And 50, 60 years ago, like, that, that information was taught um, even in public schools. I mean, we just wanted people to be educated, even on Hinduism, even on Buddhism, and different things like that. But today, like, you know, most people can't even pass that test. I mean, it's just even basic questions about other uh, world religions. And, and here's, here's my application and my point with it, is that that's spread even to believers. Like we have a, a religious illiteracy um, 
and, and the blame lies in a couple different places, but as adults, it really uh, lies with us. And, and what happens is, is that we can become students of the New Testament, but we're not students of the Old Testament. And so we can know, you know, some of these verses that we're looking at, you know, some of y'all are like, man, I never saw that before. Well, that's good. I mean, that's part of my job is to educate, enlighten, encourage, exhort, right? Um, but, 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 I mean, it's, it's, it's been there, right, for a couple thousand years. <clears throat> so it's not like it's been hiding. Um, so I, we want to be an educated people. Okay, now education doesn't save us. All right. Uh, my dad, before he got saved, like he was a big believer in education and probably saw it as the answer to society's ills before he got saved. Strong, strong, strong emphasis on education growing up. Um, he realized afterwards that was not the answer. And we need to make sure that we don't think just because we know things that that gives us some place in heaven, right? Because it doesn't. We do have to trust in Jesus, right? There has to be a, a foundational trust in him. There has to be a, a repentance. There has to be conversion. There has to be regeneration. So those things, I'm not trying to underestimate or unstate those or say those are key. But we do have to know our Bible. If we want to grow, we have to know our Bible. We have to know our Bible. So these things here, um, I mean, it's amazing stuff, but knowing our Bible, like the average Jew would be pretty well versed in their Old Testament back in Jesus' time. Would you say the average believer today is even well versed in the New Testament? Mm, probably not. I mean, all you have to do is look at all the junk going on in different churches, even sadly now conservative churches. Uh, they're not reading their Bible. They're not. Okay? They're, they're not even reading their New Testament. That's only like a third of the size of the Old Testament. So, I mean, let's not, we're not people of the New Testament. We're people of the Word. Amen. True? Okay. So we've been looking at the Old Testament. Here's the New Testament. Acts chapter 10. This is Peter. It says in verse 34, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. I, I, now, my version has it like in parentheses. Does your version have it in parentheses or maybe commas or something like that? Okay. I mean, I, I just kind of chuckle because he's like, through Jesus Christ, oh, by the way, he's Lord of all, but y'all know that, so I'm going to keep going. Right? Like he's sharing this word. They already know that. That he's Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Right? He's talking here. He's sharing. And it's almost like a side note. Hey, by the way, he's Lord of all. Oh, Lord of all. What, I mean, what do you mean, Lord of all? No, that's what we're thinking, like, Lord of all, because he's, is he like the Lord of all, like the Lord of all in the Old Testament? Yes, that's the answer. What the Jews already knew, the J believing Jews already knew here, can sometimes be revelatory for us in some sense. That's back to our religious illiteracy. Look at Romans, we'll see something similar. Romans chapter 10.
Are you in Romans 10? All right, but I want you all to see this. Let's start in verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Now, who is this Lord? Well, we got it, you know, context, right? Let's, let's get some context now. Let's go back in verse 5 of Romans 10. We're talking about Lord of all. For Moses, verse 5, chapter 10, writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because, and here it is, friends, here's the context, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What do you have to do? Confess. What do you have to do? Believe. You're confessing Jesus is Lord. Go on, verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses, and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction. This is what we just started with. Verse 12, between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And then look at verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, your versions, some, some versions, I know they, they set it off whenever it's a quote from the Old Testament. He's quoting, Paul is quoting here, the Old Testament. Do you know what book he's quoting? Joel, that's right. Your, your, your Bible probably has that in the footnotes or something. <clears throat> you cheated. That's all right. <laughs> he's quoting Joel. Well, <clears throat> Who's Joel talking about? Look at Joel. We've got to look at Joel to know who's Joel talking. Because he's saying everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Well, he's saying the Lord here is Jesus. Everyone who calls on Jesus will be saved. But look at Joel. Joel chapter 2. Now, this first part is quoted in, in, in the first part of Acts, in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 28 of Joel, and it will come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, in my Bible, and I'm sure yours, that word Lord, it's, all, it's like all caps, right? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital um, D. L-O-R-D. Anytime you got all caps Lord in the Old Testament, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh. So, it shall come about, whoever calls on the name of Yahweh shall be saved. What does Paul do? He take, takes that 
into the New Testament, he's quoting it in Romans as an application for us that if we want to be saved, that Yahweh is Jesus. Everyone who calls on the Lord will be saved. Who's the Lord? Jesus. We just saw that. Everyone who confesses, Jesus is Lord. It's a strong theological statement, the Trinity quite clear. He is Lord of all the earth. Look at Daniel chapter 7. I mean, this idea kind of reverberates throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Daniel's having a vision here. He starts in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand, a, a thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Then he goes on in verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Who's this Ancient of Days? It's a title being given to God. Okay, So this one like a son of man, which is where Jesus takes that title that he gives to himself, the primary title he gives to himself in the Gospels, the Son of Man, he's drawing it right here. That, I mean, the religious leaders at the time weren't stupid. We just think Son of Man and then atheists and agnostics are like, oh, he never claimed anything to be the son of God. No, he's, he's claiming deity. He's claiming divinity. And he draws it from this passage. The religious leaders at the time, they knew that. They knew that. They weren't stupid. So, one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days. So, so this one like a son of man comes to the ancient of days, was presented before him, and look what happens. And to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should what? Serve him. How many peoples? Oh, how many nations? How many languages? Okay, that, that seems kind of all-inclusive, right? And what are they doing? They're serving him. And look what his dominion is. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is Lord of the earth. And he has dominion in heaven and he has dominion here on earth. And it is an everlasting dominion. It shall not pass away. It references here, we, if, if you know your, your, again, your Old Testament, right? we're thinking Isaiah 9. The government on his shoulders. His kingdom will last forever. So Jesus is Lord of the earth, not as some bad theology is Satan. He's not Lord of the earth. Jesus 
Do I need to look at those verses again with you? I'm asking. Okay. So Jesus is Lord of the earth. There's not a false dichotomy where Jesus rules in one place and Satan rules the others. No. Where has the authority been given? Where has the dominion been given? To Jesus himself. His rule will never end. This is why he says in Matthew 28, right? All authority in heaven, right? And where? On earth has been given to me. All authority. So these things are right there. It's, you know, it's plain for us to see right in the open, not in hiding. It's not hard to deduce whatsoever what's being communicated. Jesus is Lord over all the earth. He has a dominion here, a kingdom that will never end. God himself has come in the flesh and visited his people. This confirms everything that we read here, right? This happens from the inception of his life. It highlights the continuity between Jesus and the Lord of Israel whose mighty acts of deliverance in Israel's past are recalled in Mary's hymn of praise. God, once again, this time in the flesh, has come to redeem his people. And it's not just from, from one calamity or, or one disaster that he's come to save them. What has he come to save them from? Their sins. What has he come to save them from? The wrath of God. He's come to save them. The disaster of disasters, the wrath of God. The calamity of calamities, the wrath of God. Yet God has come in the flesh to save his people. This changes everything. It changes everything. What he says goes. If he's the Lord of all, if it's his dominion, if it's his heaven and his earth, then he says it, and we do it. What he says goes. He's in charge. If he's over all the kings and all the lords, then he's over it all, and that includes you and me. Friends, the world says, your life for mine. That's what the world says. Your life for mine. I'm more important. So whatever needs to be sacrificed for me, that's what we're going to do. But the Christian life says, my life for yours. Let's live this way. Jesus set the ultimate example. His life for ours. The coming unto Jesus, I'm going to close with this. We saw it earlier in the psalm talking about rejoicing. And that should be our heart, really all time of the year. But the coming of Jesus into the world, look back at Luke, it brings joy. It brings joy. It starts, we get a glimpse of it in Luke, back in Luke chapter 1. We get a glimpse of it from John the Baptist. This is Elizabeth speaking. She says in verse 44, For behold, when the, so when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, 
the baby in my womb leaped for joy. John the Baptist, in the presence of his Savior Jesus, what does he do? He's leaping for joy. In the womb, leaping for joy. And look what it says one chapter later. The angels are given the pronouncement. Verse 8, in the, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, now listen to this, the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. What kind of good news is it? Good. It is good news. Good news of great joy. Good news of great joy. And who is it for? All the people. All the people. So it's good news of great joy that is for us and for everyone. So let's have joy. All right? And if you want to throw a little leap into your joy like, uh, like little John did, that's fine too, okay? But whom is this joy for? It's for the world. That's why we sing, right? Joy to the world. The Lord has come. He's come. He's coming back, but he's already come, and he came for us. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. We are all the people. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of great joy, and we want to rejoice. We have been rejoicing, we'll continue to rejoice, and we want to rejoice right now of the good news of your son, Jesus, who came in the flesh for us to rescue us, to redeem us, to save us, to call us to be a people of your own calling. Thank you, Father. We thank you, Jesus, that you are King of kings, that you are Lord of lords, and your dominion and your rule will never end. We thank you that we're part of that dominion. We're part of your kingdom. You've adopted us into your kingdom to be with you. We thank you for the relationship that we have with you, the right relationship we have with the Father, made right because of your sacrifice for us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Amen.